The Real Investment Show. Yeah, so congratulations, uh, Atlanta Braves wins the World Series. So you have to give good congratulations to them. They had a heck of a night last night, homer after homer after homer. So they just uh, they did a great job. So congratulations to the Atlanta Braves for that. Um, also, big night. Um, McAuliffe uh, in the election yesterday lost the election to Yunkin, um, which is one of the most closely watched races in the country. Now, of course, yesterday was November the 2nd, and that also means there was a lot of elections around the country for governors, mayors, cities, etc. Um, and so a lot of those results are coming in today. But the most closely watched race yesterday in particular was the McAuliffe-Yunkin race in Virginia, because that is really kind of the bellwether for what um, kind of is expected in the midterms coming up in 2022. And the challenger, of course, in this case, McAuliffe was really expected to win that race. He's been he was the incumbent and a Democrat and really expected to win that race overall, um, but uh, didn't turn out that way. Yunkin actually won the race yesterday. Uh, it's been very tight and just lately, really over the last few weeks, he really, Yunkin really surged in the polls and uh, gained a lot of traction going into the election. So that's kind of an interesting take here because again, that's kind of being looked at as a potential bellwether, as I said, for the midterm elections next year. And with the House and the Senate very close, uh, there's only about eight, nine seats in the House and uh, just then basically tied in the Senate. It's really about a race of control for the House and the Senate next year in those in those midterm elections. Of course, that has everything to do, of course, with Biden's Build Back America plan, because without control of the House and Senate, it is almost a guarantee that a lot of these more socialistic policies are not going to get passed next year. So um, again, this is why there is a big race right now by the Democrats to try to get something passed here. This uh, uh, the original three point five trillion dollar spending plan for Build Back Better has now been dropped to one and three quarters percent. Yesterday, they are announcing a, a, a move here, an agreement to try to include inside of the Build Back Better plan on lowering prescription drug benefits. Now, this has been one of the, the problems uh, perceived by Americans is that drug prices are just too darn high in America, right? We pay too much for drugs here in America. So this... Uh, this new agreement that they're going to try to include inside the, uh, the Build Back Better plan is going to limit drug prices in a lot of cases to like $35 and also reduce the out-of-pocket pr uh, premiums for Medicare to $2,000. Now, this all sounds good, right? It's like, okay, good. I'm going to get cheaper drug prices and I'm going to get you know lower out-of-pocket expenses for Medicare. That sounds great. Just understand that somebody else has to pick up that tab. So this is always the problem with these ideas. Again, more socialistic ideas here. We, and, and again, if you ever listen to a lot of the conversations in the mainstream media about healthcare, healthcare is just too expensive. Well, there's a reason it's expensive. It's expensive when you want things like, you know, $25 copays or you want things like free healthcare. It's, nothing's free. Somebody's got to pay for it at some point, and so it, it shows up in one place or another. So yes, you may get lower, uh, cheaper drug prices on some drugs. Other drugs are going to go up massively in price to compensate for the difference. It's just how it's, it's how markets and free markets work. 
nothing is free and this is the problem ultimately with socialistic policies it sounds like you're getting something for free but ultimately you've got to pay for it somewhere and again so you know one thing we've talked about in the past in terms of health care is that if you really want a good model for health for health care take a look at plastic surgery plastic surgery is, is is basically elective surgery it's something you don't have to have but it is a, you pay for it in cash pretty much the insurance doesn't cover it so what do you get from that well you get better competition between plastic surgery providers you get cheaper cost and better quality that's the basic premise behind healthcare. See, the problem with wanting insurance to cover everything, so every time we get the sniffles or, you know, we get the flu, we have to run down and, you know, the emergency room and, and you know, get some type of, you know, injection or some type of quick service to fix it. Well, and, and, we'll, and we only pay $25 for it, right? So we just want that low out of pocket. That sounds great, but costs have to go up elsewhere. So again, if you think about healthcare as insurance, and we've talked about this on the show before, you know, auto insurance is cheap because you buy liability insurance. So in other words, if you get in a wreck, you know, the insurance will kick in and pay for your liability in that accident. But you're required to take care of your car. You know, you've got to change your tires and change your oil and, and do your maintenance and upkeep. And that's why the insurance is cheap because it's rarely used. So all those premiums that are paid in, even though they're lower cost premiums, it builds up a bigger pool. So when somebody does have an accident, well, it doesn't raise the cost of premiums on everyone. And that's why auto insurance is so cheap. Healthcare insurance, the same way. If you took better care of yourself and were required to basically do your own maintenance and upkeep, then your healthcare costs would be lower. Again, when you want everybody to pay for you, costs have to go up. And this is going to be, this is why you can't solve the healthcare problem through normal processes. And this is why we have to move more and more into these socialistic processes. The problem with that is, is yes, you will get ultimately cheaper healthcare. It just won't be nearly the quality that you'd like to have. And if you have lived in any other country like I have, you'll know exactly what I mean. So, <laughs> Uh, outside of that, yesterday, big moves in the market. So this market's just been going a little bit crazy here the last couple of days. Um, really, option speculation and activity has soared through the roof here. And something we're going to talk a little bit more about this morning, Bed Bath & Beyond is up over 100% yesterday after the bell, after announcing earnings. But that's a lot of what's happening with option speculation as well. Shorts being forced to cover. We saw it yesterday in Avis Car Rental. That stock was up 100% yesterday uh, after they announced they announced boomer earnings. No, no problem with their earnings, but the stock was already up 100% from the lows, up another 100% in the, in the morning before the bell. Again, as these hedge funds and short players and a lot of these stocks are being forced to cover and it's, it's causing these massive spikes in stocks. And we're going to see, continue to see this in the markets because the option put call ratio is now back down to extremely low levels and historically at levels that normally kind of precede a corrective action in the markets. But again, we're in that real speculative moment of the markets. And of course, the big, uh, the big event this afternoon is the Federal Reserve. They'll be announcing their taper process here and maybe be giving some hints about when they may have to start actually hiking rates. Right now, it's expected that they will announce taper of $15 billion a month. That'll run through June of next year. And then in July will be the first rate hike of potentially three. 
2022. But that may actually increase and may actually speed up because if we're taking a look at homeowners equivalent rent, that has been soaring through the roof. And that is the biggest component. That is over one fourth of the CPI calculation. Homeowners equivalent rent is soaring. And that is the one thing that may just push the Fed to move and hike rates sooner than expected. Lots of stuff to get into this morning. We're talking about the markets, yield curves, what's going on with stocks versus bonds. We've got a lot of stuff to get into. Taxes on the rich, more of that coming up. Danny Ratliff joining me as well. Be right back for The Real Investment Show. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Danny Ratliff joining me. And uh, Brent Clanton struggling this morning. <laughs> Before you know it, you're going to be you're going to be an old pro at this uh, new equipment, right? <laughs> Mostly just old. <laughs> yeah, they were showing that the uh, pass rate this morning. There was uh, I put a chart out on Twitter. The pass rate for the CFA. Now that's the Certified Financial Analyst de- uh, Certification, right? So this is the you know if you want to be an investment manager, portfolio manager, etc. This is one of the certifications. We get it's a very tough test, very tough. Um, Three parts, and the last part is the hardest, right? So the level three, that is the most difficult part of passing the CFA exam. That pass rate has fallen dramatically. In fact, it has now posted the lowest pass rate on record for the CFA. Now, if you have ever studied for the CFA, it, you know, the study course guides are these big, thick books, right? I mean, they're just these massive textbooks of everything. It covers yields and options and stocks and, every, you know, international markets, you name it. Um, Mike, Mike Leibowitz, who joins me on the show on Thursday, he can tell you the, uh, the agony of going through that study. We'll see. The problem is, is that these youngsters now, the CFA has not migrated their study materials to TikTok. So... Once they do that, the pass rate will surely go back up, right, Danny? I mean, I'm just I'm just thinking that if we can get more of the CFA study exam on TikTok, might be able to get those pass rates up. Yeah, you may be onto something, Lance. Maybe you should develop a study program. <laughs> Could be. You know, we'll just we'll just get everybody studying on TikTok now. So apparently, we're headed that way anyway because the, uh, you know, ultimately the. Uh, attention span of reading books has, has fallen. I talked to my daughter the other day. She came home from school and and uh, she was she was walking the house and and uh, <laughs> she's got this book and it's brand new. And we're we're almost through the the first semester of the school year. And I said I said what book is that? She goes oh it's this book I have to have for 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 class. And I'm like well great have you read it yet? She goes no I haven't even opened it yet. We never <laughs> we never use books. <laughs> and so my the obvious question was is well, would you like me to show you how to open it? <laughs> so she got very mad at me for that one. But <laughs> that's the kind of the problem here. Anyway, Danny, good morning. Welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, good morning. Doing great. Good. So a couple of things going on here. I mean, markets have been doing uh, kind of some very interesting things here as of late. Uh, we were talking about, you know, kind of in the opening here that, you know, yesterday, Avis, Car Rental, and, and Hertz have been soaring here lately. Of course, Hertz was uh, up sharply on news that they were going to buy 100,000 Teslas. And that was great. And Elon Musk came out and said, well, um, yeah, we haven't signed the contract yet. But <laughs> Avis uh, surging on big blowout numbers, but of course, short covering. We, we're seeing, you know, these stocks, we're seeing stocks move. Bed, Bed Bath Beyond this morning will be up 100% as well at the open. 
Um, but we're seeing a lot of this speculative activity in the markets. And it's interesting because we've got stocks that are hitting records here. Um, you know, new all-time highs every day. Markets are very overbought, but really seems to be nothing to deter them. And here you've got the Fed talking about potentially, you know, reducing liquidity and potentially hiking rates next year. That announcement later this afternoon. Stocks don't really seem to care. Yield curve, though, is flattening, telling you that there's basically some problems, that economic growth is slowing down. Uh, the risk to earnings growth, as we discussed yesterday here on the show, in fact, we've got an art, if you missed yesterday's show on our website, we've got a article called Fundamentally Speaking, and going through showing the economic relationship between economic slowing down and earnings slowing down, and this is the whole premise of what's been driving the markets, yet, you know, and the yield curve is telling you that, and yet stocks don't really seem to care. What, what are you thinking here? Stocks don't seem to care at all. Yield curves certainly interesting, especially looking across the globe where we're seeing we've seen negative yields for quite some time. And you wonder if you don't start to see that contagion factor at some point. We are seeing some of those foreign countries where their their debt, you're actually getting paid something to put money there. Uh, so that's probably a, a sign of optimism to some extent that they're going to have to raise rates. But you know, looking here, we've hit the Dow has hit its its sixth time this year to jump over a thousand points right and you start thinking and going back to that same conversation that we've had that we're looking at year over year data from when we were in a pandemic when you shut in a bunch of people and now we're going to be looking back from 2022 to 2021 how good do those numbers continue to look you know there's lots of optimism out there that we're going to continue to see this growth that oh the fed's going to only you know hike rates twice we'll see the taper end by mid 2022 and everything's going to be hunky-dory but we've been here. We know what happens when rates go up. And if they have to get a little more aggressive than we expect, that can be problematic. Well, you know, this is this is kind of an interesting thing, though. I can't tell you how many emails that I've gotten here lately. And it's been a lot um, from individuals saying, you know, Lance, there's no way the Fed's going to actually taper. There's no way they're going to actually hike rates. They'll never do that because, you know, they're, they don't want to impact the stock market. And that is that has become kind of the mantra for the markets here over the last year in particular, but even before this, because the Fed's been doing QE and, and bailing out markets consecutively. I mean, if we go back to 2018 as an example, the Fed was hiking rates and they were tapering their balance sheet. And as soon as the market got a 20% decline, they were like, oh, we were just kidding. Um, you know, and they immediately started reduce, you know, the, you know, stopping their, their actions of hiking rates. And then they began actually reducing rates in June of the uh, following year. Then they were back doing repo, which was like a, a, a stealth form of QE. And then they actually went to full-blown QE to a massive scale following March of 2020. So, you know, everybody's now been trained to believe it's almost like Pavlov's dogs that, you know, as soon as something happens in the markets, you know, they're going to come in and bail out the market. And it's kind of an interesting conundrum here for the Fed. And I don't think I think this is one thing that investors are overlooking is that the Fed does have some responsibility towards their mandates, which is full employment and price stability. Well, Price stability is a, is a problem right now. Homeowners equivalent rent is projected to continue to rise sharply next year. That's 25% of the inflation calculation. Then you take a look at what's happening with auto prices. Those are continuing to go up, expecting to go up more next year. Um, employment is, by all intents and purposes, back to full employment. So there's really no, there's no reason for the Fed to come out and say, yeah, we're going to keep doing liquidity because, well, you know, things are great. You know, they're getting into a really tough spot here. They've never had this inflation push before. 
And one of the things that allowed them some flexibility on QE previously was, is yes, we had full employment, but we had disinflationary pressures in the economy. Now they don't have that. And, and, and you know, it's interesting because the Fed could be in a real box here, which may wind up actually disappointing investors a lot more than they think. That's exactly right, Lance. They've never had this inflation push. They've always been hoping for inflation. Oh, we need 2%. 2% is our mark. Well, hey, you've got it. And, and then some. And, you know, that that will be interesting to see what they come out with. Do they change their verbiage today? Um, you know, what, what do you expect on that? I've, you know, to be honest with you, I, I don't expect much. I, I think that, you know, the market has... So the, the, the way the Fed works ultimately is that you know, they are going to kind of respond to what market participants think. And, and look, mar the market participants are right. The Fed's not going to do something to roil the markets unintentionally, right, and, and create a big sell-off in the markets because that impacts consumer confidence and consumer confidence impacts economic growth. So they, they believe that chain is linked up. But it's interesting at this point right now that you have, you know, record stock prices, but you have falling consumer confidence. And that's because of the inflation problem. But markets expect the Fed right now to do $15 billion a month in taper and, and not really to talk about doing much about rates. No rate hikes in the near term, um, even though the market is pricing in three rate hikes for next year. So, again, I think we'll start to see more talk about rate hikes as we get into 2022. But I think today's statement is going to be pretty much, you know, kind of just a regurgitation of the last meeting, which is employment's recovering, inflation's running a little bit hot. Um, and because of, of that, we want to be careful of price stability. You know, we're going to do this $15 billion in taper. They'll announce that to start in December. The market has a 100% expectation of doing that, which means that's probably what they're going to announce because they, they pretty much follow the markets. And that's why they leak, you know, all these balloons, these trial balloons leading up to a meeting. And they drop all these statements out there from different Fed governors and through the press to set the markets up for these announcements. So there's no, there are uh, actually no surprises. Well, see that the price of Orioles will be going up, Lance. And so I know how you're a big fan. And so you've got to figure the Fed has to be following this. So they will hike to at yeah. some point to keep up with, with that, right? Yeah, I've noticed you can't find triple stuffed Oreos in the store anymore. So, yeah, I guess. It Man, <laughs> what a tragedy. Yeah, I know. It actually works. You know, honestly, it works out better because stuff that I that I should not be eating that's not on my diet that's gone up in price. So now I don't buy it. So it's actually helping go. me stay on my diet better. Um Anyway, um, you know, a couple other things we want to get into this morning. And, and again, I, I think it is important to, you know, make sure and watch what's going on with the yield curve, as, as Danny was saying, is that, you know, what the yield curve tells you is that economic growth is slowing, that inflation is a problem. And, and, he, and Danny's absolutely right about this point. You know, right now we're still comparing against very easy numbers. Uh, post-pandemic economic shutdown, 33% drop in GDP and, and quarter two. You know, those year-over-year -year earnings numbers are still very easy. Year-over-year -year estimates are easy. All that goes away after this quarter. And this is one thing that we've been talking about and one thing we noted in yesterday's Fundamentally Speaking. This may well, so second quarter marked the peak of economic growth, which we've written about numerous times over the last year, saying that the second quarter of, of 2021 would mark the peak of economic growth. That has indeed become the case. And quarter three will likely mark the peak of earnings growth for stocks. 
So again, note this point because this is basically as, as uh, you know, Jack Nicholson uh, in that famous movie with Helen Hunt. It's as good as it gets. Be right back after the break. Don't go away. The Department of Labor is passing a rule that will allow retirement plans, 401ks, pensions, etc., to include environmental social governance ETFs into those plans. Now, what's in, what's interesting here is is that ESG, of course, and we wrote an article about this, and we did talk about this a little bit on Monday, but uh, again, I wanted to just get Danny's points on this since uh, from a kind of financial planning perspective and the impact of this. Of course, the, the important thing about ESG is that, you know, yes, you know, we all want to be more environmentally, socially conscious, right? So we want to invest in companies that are, that are this. And as I, as I note in the article, we went through this in the late 90s with the sin stocks, uh, tobacco, alcohol, firearms, pornography, weren't going to invest in any of those. Those became the best sectors to invest in. And, you know, this is one of the interesting things because Larry Fink is, you know, kind of the leading cheerleader right now for BlackRock on ESG investing. In fact, they have dedicated their entire firm, $10 trillion in assets, to ESG investing. Yet he makes an interesting note. He's saying that, um, you know, hiding fossil fuel operations under the cover of private ownership would amount to a degree of greenwashing. Now, what's greenwashing? Right. So that is basically describing misleading statements. Greenwashing is, you know, these misleading statements on, on certain things. Right. In this case, it's misleading statements about the environmental impact. But it's interesting because here's the pot calling the kettle black because Larry Fink is probably one of the leading purveyors of greenwashing in the entire industry with 10 trillion in assets because he says, oh, we're going to invest in green energy, but yet it's to his personal benefit. You know, buying ESG-related funds are helping him, particularly as we noted on Monday's show, because they include in the top 10 holdings their own company. So for his personal benefit of making the stock price go up, you know, promoting the ESG and, and, and all these things sounds great for him. Now, here's the interesting point about this. These ESG funds, they charge up to three to four times as much as a regular S&P index fund and have exactly the same holdings. The performance is 99% correlated. So here's the important thing when it comes to the Department of Labor and this ruling. Let's add, let's add these ESG funds into these 401k plans so people can invest environmentally socially and consciously got no no problem with that except that has no impact on the economy even larry fink just uh, recently was kind of criticized because he's still investing in oil and gas stocks not surprisingly because oil and gas is the best performing sector in the market this year you think the market's up a lot this year 22 percent <laughs> oil and gas stocks are up a whole lot more this year and this was the problem back in the late 90s with SIN stocks, is that all the stocks that everybody says, oh, we're not going to invest in SIN stocks, those were the best performing sectors. And then ultimately everybody went, well, I'm going to invest in SIN stocks because that's where the money's being made. And that's what's happening here. So again, you know, you know, he is a big purveyor of greenwashing himself. But, you know, again, it's this promise of better returns and 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 fixing the environment that are 
the promise, right? The reality will be vastly different. The ESG funds are actually already starting to underperform the markets. Because why? If you're not investing in energy, you're missing out. That's where the money's being made right now. So eventually what will happen is investors will go, I want to make money. Don't really care so much about the economy. And besides, trading stocks does not impact the economy or, or, or the environment at all. If, if I, as I explained on Monday, if I buy if I buy stock, if I buy Apple stock from Danny, Danny has my money, I have his stock. That does nothing for the environment, right? But when it comes to the Department of Labor, and this is the important part, now that I've given you that whole explanation. <laughs> but, you know, one of the premises of fiduciary responsibility, and this is a big, you know, this is a big thing for Danny and for CFPs in general is about being a fiduciary. We're supposed to be providing the best performing, lowest cost assets inside of 401k plans and retirement plans because fees are one of the biggest impacts to returns and retirement returns over time. The more you pay in fees, the less you have. But yet, Danny, here's the Department of Labor recommending that we put funds that have really no proven track record at all, and more importantly, no proven track record they can outperform a basic index, that are charging three and four times as much inside of 401k plans. This is really just amounting to a political bias rather than doing actually what is good for investors and particularly good for retirement savers. I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, certainly coming from the Department of Labor, this is a really touchy subject because now they're encouraging people to put, you know, having greater access to these funds, which is fine. I'm okay with the access, but they're almost encouraging people to put more funds there. And like you mentioned, you know, many times when we look at them side by side, there's not a whole lot of difference between the actual index and an ESG fund, which is typically just a large cap uh, value or large cap growth fund. You take a look. So first of all, if we go back and look at ESG funds uh, in particular, what we're going to find is that a large number of these funds are simply have just been relabeled. Um, you know, when this whole ESG movement started, these fund managers go, man, we're missing out. That's everybody wants to own an ESG fund. So we need an ESG fund. Well, I've got this large cap value fund over here that's not gotten any inflows over the last few years because it's kind of been underperforming the index and nobody wants value. Let's rename it the ESG large cap fund and all of a sudden they get money flows. So, uh, Danny, and that's really kind of the point here is that a lot of these funds really aren't any different. In fact, one of the recent studies that we published showed that a large number of these ESG funds are basically relabeled and repackaged funds and made no changes to the actual underlying holdings. Yeah, that, that's what's so frustrating. So as an advisor, we're going to look at the big picture and say, okay, well, what are your fees? What's your cost of entrance here? And what are your ongoing fees? And what we find, like you mentioned, is that the fees inside these funds are so much more expensive than other, you know, similar assets, right? They're just packaged a little different. Um, you know, they, they've got the ESG moniker on them, so everybody's really excited about it. But at the end of the day, we find that they're so similar, but you're charged so much more. You just can't make, uh, yeah, I, I have a hard time making it. Uh, convicted, you know, reason for why somebody would invest in those. Well, and, and again, look, you know, I have, you know, no problem with investing in companies that are doing environmentally great things, right? And and that's fine. Yeah, of course. You know, and and of course, there's there's, you know, we all want to, you know, be better protectors of our environment, and and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, the problem though is, and this is the big misnomer again. As I said, if I buy your shares of Apple, you've got cash, I've got Apple. Um, 
Apple doesn't know that transaction ever existed, right? I mean, there's hundreds of millions of transactions occurring every day in the markets between buyers and sellers of, of stocks all across the spectrum. The companies are doing their job of whatever it is they do. Apple's making app iPhones and, and pads, and you got other companies doing cloud computing, et cetera. They don't even know these transactions are going on, and, and yet nobody has, has explained appropriately yet how you and me trading stocks has anything to do with environmental impact. I get it. People want to put their money, you know, kind of where their mouth is and show their conviction in certain ways, Lance, but it's coming at a cost and mm -hmm. it's, it's not an, you know, an equally, equally weighted type of deal here. Right. That's the problem. Well, and this is then this is to Larry Fink's, you know, criticism, which is, you know, he got, has gotten a lot of flack because he's still heavily invested in oil and gas stocks. And he was like, well, I didn't really expect, you know, oil and gas demand to remain high. Well, Larry, if you stop, you know, if you stop and think about this for a moment, take a look at what's happening in Europe. They tried to make that switch away from fossil fuels into renewable resources. They have an energy crisis. They can't get enough energy. They're back to producing coal-powered electricity to try to make ends meet. And, and so, yeah, the more that we shift away from highly efficient forms of electricity and energy production to much less efficient forms and, and rising demand at the same time for those very same things— you're going to have an energy problem, and that demand for oil and gas is going to continue to rise. And and look, I I wouldn't blame energy companies for going private at this point because there's going to be plenty of capital out there uh, to chase oil and gas you know related assets for decades to come. It is not you know our dependence on oil and gas is only going to get worse, not better. Because the more that we cut production, we cut production here. The more dependent we are on foreign sources of production. And that's going to make the value of domestic production just keep going up and up and up over the decades to come. So, you know, there's going to be a much more benefit for companies to be private in the future than there is going to be public. Yeah, and, and what he means by greenwashing is not that people are going to be doing the wrong things. It's just going to be that they're not going to be publicly held accountable because they don't have a bunch of shareholders. Right. And again, you know, there's a point to, you know, being public's great because you can compensate yourself with a lot of stock. <laughs> but at the rate of buybacks that we're doing, the entire market's going to be pretty private pretty soon. So <laughs> that's going to be right. that's going to be one of the other issues. You know, buybacks will have uh, will top over a trillion dollars this year of buybacks. So if you do a trillion dollars a year in buybacks, you've got about a what, a 14, 15 trillion dollar market, you know, 15 years from now our market's private something to think about all right be back after the break got a couple other topics to get into uh in particular about dumb ideas never die we'll get into that with danny ratliff when we come back right after the break don't go away so talking about dumb ideas never die right i mean this is uh you know there's some things kind of like zombie i was watching this new movie last night called uh Army of Thieves. Yes. Which is the prequel to Army of Darkness. Yes. Right? So, mm -hmm. and it's about, you know, there's, this is the, the pre-zombie apocalypse. And that's kind of like these dumb ideas. They're like, they're like zombies. They never die. Um, so the latest one, of course, is, is that it just, and it, and it just won't go away, is two things. One is, and this is coming up in the COP26. So right now we've got the global confab of millionaires and billionaires. I should just say billionaires, mostly billionaires. Um, 
in Europe right now for the Global Climate Change Conference. It's COP26, and, and this is where they're debating our future about giving us a better climate and a better ecology. And, and coming out of that is a, an incredibly bad idea that is gaining a lot of steam, which is now tariffs to combat climate change. Now, if this is the problem when you forget history, and this is the problem with the fact that we don't teach history anymore to our kids. And, and, you know, I spend a lot of time with my kids talking about the Depression and World War II and the things that happened back then because it's not getting taught in school anymore by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Smoot-Hawley was one of these ideas about tariffs that had a terrible, terrible outcome. And this is something that we talked about back in late 2017 and early 2018 when uh, President Trump launched the tariff trade war against China. We said, this is a really bad idea and it's not going to turn out well, particularly for the markets. Um, and it didn't, <laughs> particularly when you're doing it at a time you're hiking rates. Um, and this is, this is one of these ideas, though. It seems easy, right? Oh, we're just going to put a tariff on a country. If they don't, if they don't bend to our will, we're just going to tax them more. That's fine. You can certainly do that, but who do you impact? You don't really impact the country that much. They just raise their prices. Who you impact is that you impact the consumer at the end of the day. So the very thing that you're trying to combat actually winds up leading to worse outcomes because of the impact of tariffs. And this is just something that we don't seem to learn over time. We keep thinking that, you know, bad ideas will eventually become a good idea. And, you know, another one of those is the tax the wealthy. Now, look, there's a chart out this morning showing that now the top 1% of wealth ownership now exceeds the entire middle class ownership of wealth. And look, this is something we already know. We've talked about this on the show. The top 1% of income earners own roughly, you know, all a big chunk of the wealth, the top 10% of income earners own 90% of the stock market in terms of wealth, equity wealth. Thank you, Fed. You know, when you have 12 years of Fed intervention, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get a lot of wealthy people investing in the stock market and you keep pumping up asset prices and you pump them up 40% more than they should be in terms of real valuation. Yeah, you're going to create, you know, people that have money. You're going to create a lot more wealth for them. And they're going to have a lot more money because of it. And then people that don't invest in the financial markets that are being impacted by inflation and decreasing wage growth and uh, slower rates of economic growth and more debt, they're going to have less wealth. And not surprisingly, that's exactly what happened. So instead of really looking at the cause of what's creating wealth inequality in the name of equality, right, because we want everybody to be equal, we now have to start talking about things like let's tax the rich, Quick little set of facts for you. The top 10% of income earners pay 90% of the taxes. They already pay more taxes than everybody else on the planet. <laughs> so let's go tax them more, right? Because that will certainly do it. So we're going to have a wealth tax. We're going to tax capital gains. We want to tax all these things. But there are negative outcomes for that. Again, these are, these are ideas that have been tried in the past. They didn't work. But we're going to try them again. Danny, wanted to get your point on this. Uh, you know, here's uh, let me give you a couple of uh, you know commentaries here. If you think the wealth tax is already here in the rearview mirror, keep your eyes on the road. The beta test is over, but that was just the nose under the tent. Democrats' knowledge of wealth is like the old saying about pornography: they know it when they see it. 
A Democratic lawmaker looking for ways to tax billionaires. The ranks of millionaires are expanding by the million. The U.S. minted 1.73 million new millionaire households last year. Now, that sounds like a tremendous amount of households, right? 1.73 million new households became millionaires last year. Obviously, we've got wealth everywhere. Do the math. 1.73 out of 190 million is what? 1%. So the problem becomes ultimately is that do we solve anything by trying to tax the rich? Danny, your thoughts? No, I don't, I don't think we're going to solve anything. We're going to continue this problem, right? You just mentioned that they're trying to fix a problem that they created. And is this really a problem that we have wealthy people? I mean, let's think about that. Um, you know, I know there's a wage gap that's continuously, it's, it's, there's a divide here, right? But you look at Credit Suisse's report on their annual global wealth, and, you know, they're including the, the price of homes. So you think mm -hmm. about residency, homeowners, so like you mentioned, people with access to markets, access to money, they're buying homes. And, you know, we've always thought that this shouldn't, your home should not be considered an investment. But when you look at it in this light, it is, and you're going to make those numbers much, much larger. So, you know, looking at the big picture, thinking about as a globe, uh, you know, across the globe, we have 7.9 billion people, Lance. And this is the problem, right? We're upset that we have, you know, a a fraction of the world that is now generating wealth. And and look, and this is one of the misnomers. Let's let's go back to talking about equality and equity for a moment, because I think this is one of the big issues. Is that with equity? Right. That's not the outcome you want. See, this is the, this is the whole point about capitalism that tends to get lost in, in the entire conversation, which is we're worried about the bottom 10 percent of the population that is lives in poverty. We're worried about the top 10 percent of the population that has too much money. And there's obviously an inequality between the bottom 10% and the top 10%. But in any economy, it doesn't matter. Look, there's numerous reasons why people on the bottom 10% of the economy are extremely poor. Lack of education, lack of opportunity, lack of desire. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why mental illness is, is a big factor, right? And there's a lot of reasons why there is always a percentage of the population that is very poor. And we can't fix that. No matter what you do, you will never fix that bottom end of the population because that will always be there. It's in every population. It's in every society around the world. Even in poor countries, there are people that are poorer than, other, than, than the poor. There's the rich poor and the poor poor in really poor countries, right? You're never going to fix it. And in, in, in wealthy countries like the U.S., you're going to have a group that is very wealthy. They take advantage of capitalism, they take advantage of opportunity, and they continue to prosper and grow wealth, particularly when, again, the Fed is propping up financial markets more than they should be. you got a problem. But can you fix it, right? This is, this is the, the question. Can you fix it? And the answer is yes, you can fix it, but you don't want to fix it through making everybody equal because by making everybody equal, you reduce everybody to the lowest common denominator in the economy. And this is the whole problem with, you know, equality and equity in the workplace. As an example, we're going to make we want to make everybody equal in the workplace. So we hire people that don't have the same skill set as somebody else because we want everybody to be equal. So we bring the entire workplace down to the lowest common denominator. We bring education down to the lowest common denominator of those that learn because we want everybody to be equal. And we've talked about the, you know, the example of the classroom and taking tests and that, you know, if you want to have equality in test taking, everybody's going to make a D ultimately because we've got to bring everybody down to the slowest learner to make everything equal. You can't bring the slow learner up to the fast learner. It just can't happen. So to create equity, 
everybody has to be equal. You have to go down to the lowest common denominator, and that's not the outcome you want for an economy. You want rich people. They're the ones that create opportunity. They're the ones that create jobs. Those are the ones that create better wealth for everybody. They're the ones that pay 90% of the taxes for all these other programs that you want to give out. You want to give, you want to give more money to poor people? Fantastic. Who's going to pay for it? Rich people. The problem is, is that once you begin taxing rich people more, they have the issue of mobility. When I have a lot of capital... I can move that money. I can move it offshore. I can move it to a tax haven where I don't have to pay taxes. I can change its form. Money is fungible. And I can do anything I want with it as long as there is a tax code that I can work with that has lots of loopholes in it. And this is the problem with raising taxes. See, we keep focusing on the tax rate, right? We're going to raise the tax rate on the rich or we're going to add an additional tax on capital gains or whatever it is. The problem is not the tax rate. The problem is the tax code. And if you want to fix taxes, you've got to fix the tax code. But see, nobody actually wants to touch that part because it's a boondoggle. <laughs> Once you get into trying to fix the tax code, that is an incredibly complex system of tax rules that have been written over the last 200 years. And yeah, they're full of loopholes. But there's also lots of disadvantages to doing that. So nobody wants to touch it. Tax rates are something that can be fixed very easily and repealed for a quick headline, but doesn't really affect the rate of tax revenue that is collected in the economy. In fact, all you have to do is take a look at tax revenue. Tax revenue grows at about the rate of economic growth over time, exactly what you would expect. But you're not collecting, when you adjust tax rates, you take a look at the amount of tax revenue collected by the government and, and go back and look at the changes of tax rates. You can't tell where tax rates were changed. It didn't really increase or decrease the rate of revenue collection. Why? Because the people that pay the taxes, they work the system. Again, don't hate the player. Hate the game. That wraps up the show for the day. Um, of course, we'll be back tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz because we'll be talking about what the Fed does today. That's the big story. Is the Fed going to talk about tapering? Are they going to stick to their story? Hiking rates? What's going to be in that language? That's what everybody's going to be looking at after the bell today in particular as to what the Fed said, what they're going to be doing over the next few months, and how that might impact markets. We'll get into that all in detail tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz right here on the show. I'm Real Science Roberts. See you then. It's a rich man's world.